Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome to another week. Thank you. Excited to be back. Yeah. What are we doing today? Answering questions, I hope. We are answering questions. You know, we have a few that... um, they may not require a full episode themselves. So we're going to kind of turn it into a mailbag episode. Yes. So thank you for all of you submitting questions. Scott and I do read each and every one and we, we sort them to see how to best answer them. And some, some of these questions we devote an entire episode to. Some are a little quicker and we feel as if it couldn't be a full episode, but it's still certainly important. So we wanted to compile a few of them and give more quick hit answers to some of these that maybe that's all they need. Yeah, exactly. Um, so do you want to dive into the first one? Let's do it. So this first question, and we'll go through probably three or four today, but this question is for Brad and Brad says this, he says, I contribute to a 401k at work. I'm able to make both Roth and regular contributions. And my company also contributes to the plan early in my career. I made mostly Roth contributions. Currently I make all pre-tax contributions on Fidelity's website. I see that they keep track of how much of my contributions are Roth traditional or safe Harbor employer contributions. So for example, 30% of my total deferrals have been Roth deferrals and the rest are traditional or from my employer. So here's my question. When I retire and start taking money out, how much tax will I pay on my withdrawals? If I'd only made Roth deferrals, I'd pay no tax. If it were all tax deferred, I would pay tax on my earnings as if it were income. What happens when it was a mix? Am I taxed for only a portion of the earnings? How is that portion determined? And will I have to make any choices on the withdrawals? regarding these sources. Thanks and love your podcast. I've learned so much from you already. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Brad. Brad. Um, yeah. First things first, I just want to say good job saving. Good job saving. Yeah. But also, um, you know, just because many, some people may not have listened to this, right? They're saying there's, he's saying there's two different types, Roth, meaning we pay taxes today and don't have to pay them in the future or regular pre-tax. We make our contribution today. We don't pay tax now. We pay taxes in the end. Yeah. And um, smart of him to ask the question, like, how do we make sure we don't muddy these waters and accidentally commingle these funds, which is, in a sense, it's happening now at the 401k plan. But as he noted, Fidelity's site is helping him track it. Exactly. And I think that's the, the confusing part, but also the nice part, where if you just look at your 401k, you see one big balance. And they might distinguish how much is Roth and how much is pre-tax. But really, when you look at your statement, it's one big balance. Yep. On the back end, though, they are the record keeper. That's exactly what they are doing is keeping track of all that. Yes. And safe harbor or employer contributions, which are pre-tax as well. Exactly. So what's going to happen, Brad, is most likely when you do retire or leave this company, you're not just going to start taking withdrawals directly from your 401k to live on. What most people will do is they will roll over their 401k to an IRA. And what will happen then is when you go to make that rollover call, they will ask you where you want the funds sent. 
and they will simply send the traditional portion of that 401k to your traditional IRA and the Roth portion of that 401k to a Roth IRA. And then you can be much more intentional, intentional about what account you're pulling money from for income. True. Yeah. Um, Two things on that. Well, the thing I would add, one, like a lot more people are going from corporation to corporation. Um, we've talked about the idea of doing like backdoor Roths in the past. <clears throat> and if that's something that you want to do, you'll probably choose not to put traditional, your pre-tax 401k money into a IRA account at a custodian. Now you can go back and listen to episodes on why that is. Um, but uh, what will happen is when you do uh, leave your, so, you know, if I'm at Stone Steps now and I leave and I go decide to work for um, James's company, which I might have to soon, um, as great as he's doing, just kidding, we're both doing just fine. <laughs> um, but if that happened, if I did leave and I wanted to go do that, what would happen is if he has a 401k company that I can start a new plan on, it typically will allow roll-ins, meaning I can send money into the 401k plan. Now, the one most roll-ins will not actually allow you to put after-tax dollars in the plan. It's just the way the plans are written. So I'll probably be able to send my pre-tax money over to the 401k, but I'm going to have to send my after-tax money to a Roth IRA and some custodian. Yeah. So just, just know that that's going to be normal. And it's also really nice for you not to mix those funds up yes. on accident. The one thing you would not want to do is put all of them into the same regular IRA account. <laughs> right. Because what happens is, is you actually don't have to pay taxes on the funds that were after tax. But if you can't track it, you kind of just get to a point where you just have to start paying taxes because you can't figure out that you don't owe taxes. Yeah, it's a huge administrative burden to horrific track it. And then number two, you can't be intentional about how much you want from pre-tax versus Roth. It's just going to be a pro rata amount if everything is mingled. And usually most people want to have the ability to pull from Roth or traditional based upon where their tax bracket is. Yep. Cool. So simple answer is keep them separate. Yes. Um, hopefully you keep building up those Roth 401k assets or a solo 401k. So you do things like back to a Roth if you have the ability in the future and keep it separate between Roth and regular IRAs. Absolutely. And one, one additional thing to add to that is usually most companies will allow you to choose how do you want your Roth balance invested and how do you want your pre-tax balance invested. In many cases, it makes sense to invest the same. But if you're approaching retirement and you want to know where to pull funds from first, your pre-tax accounts might be invested differently in your Roth accounts. So you do actually have the ability in many cases to invest those differently, even if they're all in the same account. And the record keeper will track that for you. But anyways, Brad, thanks for the question. Next question is from Taylor. Can yeah, I this one? I will. Um, Taylor says, hello. My company offers an ESPP, that's Employee Stock Purchase Plan, and we can contribute up to 10% of our annual pay and purchase company stock at a 15% discount. The purchase stock is then subject to a one-year holding restriction, which you cannot sell the purchase stock. I also have restricted stock units, RSUs, from the company that vest quarterly over four years. Does it make sense to contribute the max amount possible to ESPP to receive the 15% discount despite the one-year holding period risk of price fluctuation. Considering I also get RSUs, restricted stock units, that are available for sale on vesting, I could diversify by selling those as they vest to reduce the risk of ESPP. For your information, I also max out my 401k contribution and Roth IRA into various index funds. 
Awesome. Thanks for the question, Taylor. Yeah, thank you, Taylor. And with anything, we got to get the, you know, the, it depends out of the way. <laughs> it depends. It depends. Uh, what well, we'd start with was what are your goals? What are you trying to invest and plan for? This isn't <clears throat> investing for the sake of investing, um, but you want to align the investing you're doing with some specific goal or desired outcome. So, so yeah, start there. Okay, let's back up even a little bit more. Let's back up. Stock compensation is happening for Taylor. It happens for a lot of people who are listening, I'm assuming. It's, it's one of the things we focus on at Stone Steps for clients. But we have income, our own salary and wages. Then we have restricted stock units, which basically is a form of bonus in the form of stock. And then Taylor might even be getting a cash bonus on top of this. It's not mentioned here, but it could easily be happening. You see it all the time. And then there's this amazing program and employee stock purchase program. And the question is, do I utilize it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the, the rules just for everyone at home, if you're not really familiar with it, is you can tip. Now, her company is saying 10% of your income. There can be varying degrees of percentage of income that a company will allow. But the max is $25,000 per year, which is really at a 15% discount, $21,250 a year right? Is the amount someone's allowed to contribute and then they get that 15% bump up, which gets rid of that $25,000 purchase. Can actually get a little bit more wonky than that. I'm not going to go any deeper, but, and if, if you could just, if I'm just going to, the reason I'm explaining this is imagine that you, you give $21,250, you set it aside, James does. And then I show up and I say, and I'm the, I'm the company and I say, James, great job. I'm going to give you $25,000 worth of stock. Well, you just made that difference, mm-hmm. right? That difference is ordinary income to you the moment you go sell the stock, no matter what. So if there's no holding period on that stock, it's kind of just a gimme, right? It's like, hey, I can, I can just get this bonus. Mm-hmm. But now that there's a year waiting period, that kind of changes the dynamics a little bit. Yeah. So what I would like to see before recommending whether Taylor should do that or not, yeah. of course, we're not going to do it because we don't have enough information, but we can look at this and say, if all Taylor was doing was investing in the ESPP and said, look, I don't, I'm not doing my 401k. I don't have a Roth IRA. I'm not saving anywhere else. Then there's a lot of risk in this. But the, the risk in this, there's also much more return potential in this than there could be in a 401k, a Roth IRA, or other things. So there is risk with doing this, but there's also a corresponding return potential that goes along with it. So because Taylor is saying that the 401k and the Roth IRA and RSUs that's already happening. To me, there's enough diversified stuff. There's probably a better way of saying that, but there's enough diversification happening and long-term saving happening and other things happening that I would probably say, unless you're sacrificing other things that you want to do, or you're missing out on other goals that you have, it probably makes a lot of sense to consider it, even considering the one-year holding period, if you've already filled up all your other buckets. Yeah, I think I think that's a very reasonable lens to look through this. My my own my the only thing I would add to that is I'd want to know from Taylor, do you self do you see yourself being here at this company for the foreseeable future? Because if you do and you're going to participate in this ESPP program for the next 10 years, then this becomes less and less of a risk typically. There's all, there's still the risk of just the company itself. We don't even know what company it is. Could be highly volatile. We don't know those answers. That will add to the to how you feel about this. But it's really just, I think, uh, kind of what the underlying underpinning of what you're getting at is really comes down to understanding your trade-offs. And that if you do go put this 25, 21,250 in and it falls by half, are you okay with that? 
right? Like there's some tax ramifications that happen. I'm not even going to dive into them too deeply here um, that just get kind of convoluted because the 15% 15 discount, you always have to pay um, no, no matter what. So, you know, it's just, there's, there's stuff to deal with there, but it, it could make sense if you don't have other places to go put money. Um, and it, and it helps support the goals that you have for the long term. Uh, of course. And then will we just add, make sure that you have a plan for what you're going to do when the stock does best. Is yeah. The plan to immediately sell after that year, that one year holding require holding requirement is the plan to hold it indefinitely because you want to have a vested interest in your company's performance. And you're saying I'm already doing my other stuff. So I'm fine with that. Or do you have other goals that you want to sell that, sell those funds for and immediately invest into those other goals or save for those other goals? But having that plan up front allows you to make a more rational and intentional decision because if you don't, then you're going to be swayed by the happenings of whatever the stock's doing at that time. Yep. And you're going to make it more of an emotional decision if there's not a, a solid plan in place for what to do with it when that trading period or when that um, one-year window is met. I think the other thing I'd want to know is what's your existing, what's Taylor's existing position look like for this company on her balance sheet as a whole, right? Are we already, do we already have a large position of net worth and we don't really need to increase position size? Um, do you have nothing? And RSUs are really, you're just treating them, you're doing them all as sell the cash, right? When they have arrive and you, but you do want to have some component of your net worth sitting in this stock. Mm-hmm. And if, if that's the case, this could be a wonderful way to get that position. Right. If you already have a huge um, liquid position and you don't really need any more and you're looking at divesting rather than investing, then this may not be that helpful for you. Right. Right. So I think takeaway is, is this a bad thing? No, absolutely not. This could be a good thing, but see what's going on everywhere else first. How does this fit into the overall picture and fit within the overall context of what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks for the question. Next question is from Anonymous. And Anonymous says, hi guys, I'm a newer listener of your podcast. My parents are in their early sixties with little money put away for retirement. Mm. My mom is unable to work anymore due to medical issues. And so she has fixed disability income. Mm. My dad does have earned income. What question, or my question is, what is the best financial vehicle to optimize their retirement growth in such a short time period? Yeah. Well, thank you for your question. And I'm I'm sorry, that's always difficult for your parents, for you trying to plan for them, wanting to make sure that everything is okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you're having to face the reality of what to do with this. So I think the first thing I would look at is, unfortunately, there's not like a fallback in the stock market that says, okay, if there's these extreme situations, are there these almost safety net type investments that can get a lot of really quick growth with still minimal risk? There's no, that doesn't exist. The stock market is not empathetic to anyone. It doesn't care about our our situation, unfortunately. So what we have to look at is look at the investment market or the stock market in the same way anyone would in terms of what's that right amount of risk or return and the trade-off between the two that I'm willing to accept. Yeah. Um, what I might go to before that, though, is understanding if we can't control the stock market, what Scott and I always like to come back to is what can you control? And the two big things I would yeah. say you can control in this situation are your expenses or your parents' expenses and their income. Mm-hmm. With income, let's start there. It said, so my mom is unable to work anymore due to medical issues. And so she has a fixed disability income. So it looks like that income is going to be fixed. I'm not sure if that's 
a social security disability income or a private insurance disability income, but there's some income there that's probably probably not a lot of flexibility to increase. Yeah. So I don't know there's much that we can do there. The other income stream that that jumps out at me as being important, and I don't know what the details would be, but it looks like your dad is still working. And one of the biggest income sources a lot of people are going to have in retirement is, is social security. Mm-hmm. And Social security, thankfully, you can to an extent control how much that income is going to be. Mm-hmm. And that income goes up based upon a couple factors, one of which is how long do you delay before collecting? So you can collect as early as age 62 and as late as age 70. The mm-hmm. longer that you wait to collect, the higher that benefit's going to be. So every extra year of work that your dad has, the more you're going to get a guaranteed increase in income. The second factor that's going to increase that is earnings. So social security is calculated by looking at your 35 highest years of earnings. So say, for example, your dad's been working for 30 years in a job covered by social security. Well, if you were to stop today, social security is going to look at those 30 years and then add another five years of $0 as earnings in so that when they're running their their formula for how much is the social security benefit going to be, there's going to be five years showing $0 in earnings. Obviously, this is just a hypothetical. I have no idea how many years of earnings your dad has, but each additional year of working is knocking one year of $0 earnings out of the equation in that example and adding one more year in of higher earnings. Yeah. So that could be another situation or that's an income source that could be controlled. Um, at least based upon our knowledge from looking at this question. And, and I might look at something like that. Agreed. I, you know, the, the other thing that just, it hits me and I, I just, I, I feel for, for Anonymous's parents, um, that one of them's at a place where they can't work and the, and the other can, um, that hits close to home for me personally. Um, but the, another thing to, to think about even beyond social security, uh, with, with dad's income is just simply that every year that, um, that your your mom and dad can sustain themselves on their own income is a, another year that they don't need to rely upon social security or some form of savings or anything else because it just propelled them a year further down the line. Right. Um, on the social security side, especially once we hit full retirement age, every year that we delay, if they are, if your dad is healthy, um, every year that he delays, he gets an extra eight percent of of um, of payment f- for. The, for the rest of his life, which is, right. which is a rate of return that we really, you can't really recreate um, elsewhere. And for his mother's life, if the father should predecease the mother at any point. Right. So if she were to have, if he were to have higher, a higher payment, right. um, because then she would get the spousal benefit. Um, there's a, pardon me, the survivor benefit. So um, those are things that I think about. The other thing that I think about is just, can they save anything? Yeah. Um, because it kind of, it kind of does come back to control in that instance where it's more about hey looking at where you looking at where we are what can we do is there a way for us to save anything so that we start saving up to have um, our own you know rainy day bucket in case we need it yeah. more so than looking at how do we go and supercharge this for investment um, you can obviously go invest for for investment sake um, you know things like uh, if your dad's still working, IRA accounts or Roth IRA accounts, depending on tax bracket, can still make sense to utilize. Um, but it's just a matter of what's really the right fit for them. And you know, when you're that close to retirement years, and if you don't have a lot saved, there's not a 
there's sadly not a way to go really grow a nest egg quickly um, unless income changes disproportionately for some reason that we just don't know. Right. Right. Um, that's certainly one way you can do it. But yeah, and I agree with that because I think the temptation is to say, well, how can we get the savings that are there to grow as fast as possible? And I would caution against looking for something that is much more risky because it does offer higher growth potential. It's, it, there's just not enough years to to get the benefits of compounding growth at this point. Exactly. So the savings themselves are probably even more important than the growth on those savings and making sure that you're not stretching or reaching for what would be far too risky of an investment um, just for the sake of trying to get some extra growth to make up for some things. So, yep. And the other, the other thing is it's, it's not really finance specific, but it comes back to um, sometimes it can be cultural. Sometimes it can be, it's just, it's just family dynamics as well. But if you can have conversations with them around what would they like, how would they like to handle their finances? How would they like certain circumstances for them to go? Just giving them the space to be heard can be really helpful. Um, and there, and then we, this is anonymous, so we don't know who sent this, but you know, there, there, there are some clients that, that I work with where just from a cultural standpoint, they're, they, they're like, Hey, I'm taking care of my, my parents. If anything happens, right. um, that's not always the case. So we don't really know what's here, but then that might even be like, what can you do? It, it, that might be part of this question. And that might be tying in your spouse then to talk about that. How are you going to help support them if they need it? Um, there's a lot of things to think about there. Actually, like I'm, I'm just barely in Gen X, but Gen X is kind of getting labeled, or at least was for a while, the sandwich generation, because you have kids who are growing up and needing help and launching. And then you have some family members who are uh, their parents who who are needing help too. So right. it's really just, uh, I really feel for this question. Um, is there anything else that you would add? No, I think that's it. Understand what you can control, which in this case, well, I guess I would add, yes, expenses. I have no idea what expenses are. My guess is they're not exorbitant um, or you'd already have looked at those. But one of the things that you can do is, is are there any areas that you could reduce expenses? And it might not be a cut the grocery bill or a cut the utility bill or cut eating out those, those sometimes have they're, they're important but you can only squeeze those so much you can mm-hmm. only lower those so much um but is there a mortgage could you downsize a home and eliminate a mortgage which could be pretty significant are there other things like that you could look to do um, yeah do they I mean, have a home and are they sitting on any equity not in that and if they sell could they downsize maintain standard of living and, and have some extra cash to live on these are some details I just don't know, but just looking at it from all angles to make sure that there's nothing that you haven't considered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So that any, anything else for that one? Nope. I, I just, I feel for the family. Yeah. Yes. Well, that that's three questions down. And I think we got 97 more till the end of today's episode. You want to yeah. knock off the fourth? <laughs> no, I think we're no, good. That's it. For we're what twenty two minutes in for an episode. I, I think to keep going. Whatever. <laughs> Let it be known that Scott wants to stop this episode. <laughs> we'll we'll leave him. It. Hank, can we give him like a cliffhanger to next week? Yeah. What's we're we gonna do next week? Let's do a question next week on kind of the the opposite of what we just talked about. Now, um, let's talk about someone who's who sent in a question being younger and what can they do to set themselves up for success. I can't wait for that. Me, me either. Let's go. Oh, I hope to get. Okay. Well, let's wrap up now. Yeah. So we can hurry up and make it next week. Yeah. All right. 
Well, thank you for all of your questions. And we will see you next week with this amazing episode that Scott has prepared for us. Yes. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. There's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.